So we are continuing our message and mission series about gospel-shaped outreach. Uh, Last week, we tried to answer the question, who are we reaching? And talked about the fact that we are reaching sinners um, who need a Savior. um, And that that was our second point, right? People who need salvation. So um, step one is just to acknowledge, right? We we are sinners. Okay. Uh, Step two is to acknowledge that's a big deal. It's not... uh, you know, there's, there's encouragement in one sense to say we're all sinners, we're in this together, um, but to be reminded of the truth, the hard reality that we are separated from God because of that sin, and so we are in need of a Savior, um, so we're reaching people who need a Savior, uh, and then the last one was that we are tr- reaching people who can trust in God's promised salvation, um, that God has promised, He has initiated, He has acted first in loving us and saving us and rescuing us. Um, and so people that we are reaching uh, are those who can believe in that, trust in that, and be saved, uh, just as we have trusted in that and been saved, uh, if that is true for you, that you've trusted in Jesus for salvation. Uh, today is, well, what is the gospel plan? And what we mean by that is not uh, what is the, um, the ABCs of, of believing, uh, if you've heard that at Vacation Bible School, or Uh, kind of a gospel presentation. We'll kind of talk about that in a couple of weeks with what do we say. Um, But what is the good news plan? What is God's plan of redemption? And so um, there is a lot that could be said about that, um, and we'll dive in deeper in Bible study in the next hour to that. Um, But today we'll just take kind of a brief look at that from Acts 13. We'll be in Acts chapter 13, uh, kind of a lengthy passage. but I think, and I was telling Will, and again, I curse myself every time I do this, uh, I think a shorter sermon, I think a, a brief word on a longer passage, um, but uh, again, every time I say that, it turns into, uh, you know, not that. So um, we'll see how it goes. But we'll be in Acts 13. Um, this is an account, um, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Uh, they're going to be in Antioch in Pisidia. Not the, not the Antioch that we usually hear about, uh, but Antioch in Pisidia, so not quite the, the big city that uh, Antioch would be. Um, and so we'll pick up with them in verse 13 of chapter 13 uh, of the book of Acts. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And so this men of Israel, he's talking about the Jewish people who are there, Jewish by race, right? Not just by religion, but then those who fear God, those who were not born into the Jewish race, but have converted to Judaism. And so these are all uh, people who are um, practicing in the synagogue, maybe not all Jewish by birth, but have studied the, the, the law and the prophets, okay? Verse 17, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. 
Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. <clears throat> so again, a, a lengthy passage describing Paul and Barnabas um, doing what they do, right, on these missionary journeys, <clears throat> taking the gospel message of Jesus, starting first in the synagogues, and then going out from there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Paul would say, right, he was meant to share the gospel, that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so he knows he has a mission to preach to the Gentiles as well. But he has this pattern of starting with the Jews, starting in the synagogues, and going out from there. And so that's what this account is. We see him go to the synagogue, and they read from the Law and the Prophets. They do kind of their normal service. And then they ask, brothers, do you have a word of encouragement? And Paul, you know, he's just, I can only imagine just how, like, excited he is. Like, oh, all right, yep, uh, I got a word of encouragement for you. And he gets to stand up and how amazing it is that, that God has prepared and equipped and, and um, 
orchestrated Paul's life in such a way, right? That Paul, uh, if you read his resume that he gives us in Philippians, that he's this uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, a Jew of Jews of the tribe of Benjamin, and has this great pedigree because he was a Pharisee, like in line to be a part of the, the, the Sanhedrin and, and kind of a ruler of, uh, of the synagogue and ruler of the Jews in, in such a way that he was just on this like fast track, you know, the best education. He would have been one of these great people who could debate in all kinds of different ways, right? This, what they would call a, a diatribe where uh, this kind of question and answer format. So he was prepared for all these different scenarios. And then God saves him, right, and shows him this reality of, uh, of Christ being the Messiah and Christ being the fulfillment of all these things that he's been taught about and learned about. And so now he has this amazing ability and gifting and then supernatural gifting, right, to step into these places and connect all these dots for Jewish people to say, look, you, you've got all this education, you've got all these promises, you know the God of our people, let me tell you about the fulfillment of the promises that, that God has made to our people. And the first thing that I want to point out about God's plan of uh, the gospel, what is the gospel plan, is that God's plan has always been to rescue his people. God's plan has always been to rescue his people. I mentioned that Paul knows his audience, right? He knows that uh, these are Jewish people in the synagogue uh, or converts to Judaism who are studying the law, the prophets, <clears throat> and so he makes this connection, this uh, kind of puts himself in, in their, uh, in solidarity with them, in connection and unity with them. Uh, Paul would say of himself, right, to the Jews, he was a Jew, and to the Greeks, he was a Greek. He had this ability to, uh, to, to contextualize, uh, and you'll see that if you, if you read like two more chapters in Acts, you'll see him speaking to Greeks and going the route of philosophy and, and unknown gods and those kinds of things. Um, as opposed to here, where he's like, this is a Jewish audience, and so I know where they're coming from. This is this gospel fluency that's uh, so vital and so important. Um, Paul, of course, was amazing at this. And so he points to, he, he says, our fathers, right? He's, so he's talking about our, our Jewish ancestors that God has made promises to, and, and pointing them back to God's faithfulness to our Jewish fathers what God has done to, to rescue us and, and to preserve us and, to, and to, pro, to bless us. He talks about the blessing, the rescue of God that God has provided for his people in the past, uh, how God put up with them in the desert. Um, make sure I'm not misreading that. They put up with them. Um, another way to translate that is to carry them. He carried them through the wilderness. This rescue that you can read about back in Exodus as God's people were enslaved and then brought out of slavery, right, to freedom. And the picture, right, this is a, a type or a foreshadowing of God's uh, rescue from sin and the bondage to sin that we have apart from Christ. He talks about how God saw them through the wilderness, and then after that, he destroyed enemies for them and, and blessed them as a nation. <clears throat> and so he is uh, pointing this picture of, of rescue that God has literally and physically rescued his people, but Paul's going to keep pointing us to this thread of rescue spiritually, not just this earthly physical rescue. He's reminding them of God's heart to rescue and his faithfulness to rescue. Just like we looked at Genesis 3 last week in this first gospel message, right? God 
declared a plan to rescue us in the garden at the fall. He's always shown a heart to rescue his people. And I think we see this element again of, of Paul proclaiming the good news, um, this element of, of solidarity that I tried to, again, kind of emphasize last week that um, Paul emphasizes God's rescue of his people and makes sure his audience knows that they are part of God's people. God rescues his people, so he's speaking to this audience to say, you are God's people, and God is going to rescue his people. And so this idea of, like, this message applies to you as he's speaking in the synagogue. As I pointed out last week, right, this message is for sinners, and we are sinners. If we're in Christ, we're sinners saved by grace. The Bible calls us saints, saints who sin, right, until we are perfected in glory, but no better than any other sinner that is yet to believe in Jesus. And so Paul is painting this picture of, listen, this God has a rescue for his people, his people speaking to the people of God, and he knows they consider themselves the people of God, and God has a rescue plan for you is the point that he's starting to make here. And he'll get very explicit with it, right? He's not just going to beat around the bush. So when we look at God's heart and plan to rescue, we need to remember we're, we're all in need of this rescue, and we're all covered under this plan that Paul's about to kind of present to them. God has been promising and acting towards his promise to rescue and redeem since Genesis, right? Since way back when <clears throat> he defeats our enemies just as Paul described here. He puts up with us in the desert just as Paul describes here. And he rescues us from bondage just as Paul describes here. But not only has he promised to rescue his people, he's promised to do it through a saving king. Point number two, God's plan has always included a promised king. Paul reminds his hearers in the synagogue that the Israelites asked for a king and were given Saul. And I love how he says, not that Saul stepped out of office or whatever, he says in verse 22, when he had removed him, right? It's just addressing the sovereignty of God over all of these things. You asked for a king, God gave you a king, God removed that king, and then David came after him. And even David, who is a man after God's own heart, was still just a forerunner to the Savior King that would come after him. Verse 23, speaking of David, Paul says, of this man's offspring, right, of David's offspring, God has brought a Savior who is Jesus. So a great a king as David was, he's not the king of kings, he's not the promised saving king, he is, again, another type or foreshadowing of the Savior King. The rescuer, the Messiah, the Redeemer was promised, again, way back in Genesis 3. God said there will be someone to come and defeat the enemy, right? This Messiah, this promised one. And you get to continue to see the promise of this Messiah, the promise of this Savior King throughout the Old Testament. Certain leaders or prophets or kings made for good candidates in the minds of many until Jesus came to say, this perhaps is the Messiah, this perhaps is the one to lead us to military victory or national prominence to, to establish us, to establish this earthly kingdom, but there would only be one true Messiah, one true promised one, and he would set himself apart, he would be set apart from all these other candidates. People are always tempted to elevate someone to the place of God or Savior, and I think it's because we want rescue, right? And as soon as we can crown someone in some way, we start to put our hopes in them. Uh, or more accurately, we start to put our hopes in a kingdom that we think should be established. This is common in the Bible. The people of God who were 
um, nationally, physically, like politically persecuted. They long for this promised king and kingdom, but they're thinking here on earth. We want to be, uh, uh, we want prosperity here on earth. We want to uh, not have, be defeated by our enemies. We want to not have lack or want. Um, and so we want a king and we desire a king. And so they start to interpret the promise in light of their desires instead of what God is really promising them. <clears throat> but Jesus would say his kingdom is not of this world. And so he's always correcting when people start to think about the kingdom that he's going to establish. It should look this way or we can't wait for this to happen. Surely he will establish this. And Jesus keeps saying, no, the kingdom is this. It's a spiritual kingdom. It is not what you think it is. But people were always hoping for and expecting a ruler to come and set up what they thought, right, to rescue them from their plight and set them in a place of prosperity. And so we're always getting the person wrong, trying to crown the wrong person, or we're getting the type of kingdom wrong or both. And then Jesus finally arrives. He declares himself the Messiah, and people still get it wrong, right? Okay, you're the Messiah. Set up shop, right? Like vanquish the enemies. Let's reestablish the kingdom here on earth. And so he's always correcting these ideas. This is not the kingdom that I'm talking about, not the kingdom I'm bringing. And even after his life, death, and resurrection, Paul and Acts, and we now, we still carry this message of God's kingdom to kind of course correct and redirect people with false perceptions, uh, I think presenting the gospel message can go either way. We can start with a kingdom and point to the king to say that if this is the, the kingdom that you're uh, hoping for, let me tell you about the king and how, who he is and how he wants to run things. Or you can start with the king and then point to his kingdom. If you acknowledge that there is a king, there is someone coming to save and someone to rule, how does he want things to operate? Um, either way, we have dots to connect, I think, for people. It was much more contextual for Paul to be able to point Jewish people and Jewish converts to Jesus as king because this is part of their history. that They've been promised a king and promised a nation and promised a kingdom. For us, at least in my mind, there's a more natural bridge if you're trying to paint this picture to start, I think, because uh, of not being of Jewish ancestry and having these promises to put our hopes in, uh, to start with this idea of law and lawgiver if there's a law, if there's a, an oughtness to, to life and how we ought to act and treat others, where did that standard come from? And so if there's a lawgiver, then how does this lawgiver want us to live, right? And so it's this idea of king and kingdom. And so I think that's one way, as, as we talk about gospel fluency, to kind of paint that picture and point people to a king and kingdom in Christ. How should people be treated, right? How, do we, how should we act? Where does this idea come from? Um, ultimately it comes from the Lord, right? And so if there is a Lord, there is a God, there is a king, how should his kingdom look? Uh, and we'll, again, we'll unpack more of that in a couple of weeks when we go over what do we say. But I uh, just wanted to establish this morning that God's plan has always included a promised king who is the saving one or redeemer. And once that is established, we look to who that king might be. Paul told us in this passage, and it becomes our third and final point. God's plan of salvation has been fulfilled in Jesus. So he's promised rescue, he's promised a king, and that Jesus is the fulfillment of this plan of salvation. Paul explains that Jesus is the rescuer and the promised king. He's the truer and better David. As people looked to David, even though David was a man after God's own heart and he brought um, prominence and victory and you know, military might to the nation of Israel and these kinds of things that people thought, this is it. This is being established. 
right? The temple will be built and all this kind of stuff. Um, following him, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. He was just a, a forerunner. Uh, he wasn't the king, the savior king. And he points to this uh, historical fact of the person, the real life person, King David, when he died, he says, went to sleep, when he fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. This is idea of physically dying, being buried and decomposing. And so Paul is saying David wasn't the king. He wasn't him. He wasn't the Messiah as great as he was because he was just a man who died and was decomposing in the earth like everyone else who dies. But Jesus did not see corruption. And it was prophesied about the the Messiah, the Savior King, that he would not see corruption. He would not decompose. And so as Jesus dies, yes, but is raised back to life, he doesn't see that same fate. And so Paul is saying this Jesus, he's the fulfillment. He's the Savior King. He is the prophesied one, the Messiah. Jesus fits the description, right, as God raised him from the dead. Paul in this passage says the prophecies were fulfilled. Um, and he doesn't say in ignorance, but basically he's painting this picture of um, unwittingly fulfilling the prophecies as those who condemned Jesus. See, the promises said Jesus would unjustly suffer and die. And so the ones who crucified him, arrested him, crucified him, tortured him, put him to death in an effort to stop him and squash the movement of the way, this, this up, uprising of Christianity and this leader of, of these people who were um, overthrowing the way, the status quo, religiously for the Jews and, and almost politically for the Romans, right? And just upsetting the, the way things needed to be or the way they thought they should be. This person, Jesus, they said, well, we'll just, we'll kill him and we'll put an end to this. They're unwittingly fulfilling the prophecies about him. Paul even almost, again, not to read into the scripture, but almost turns the screw here a little bit. In verse 29, he says, when they had carried out all that was written of him. So God promises way back when these, these prophecies, these promises about the Messiah, about the one who is to come. And these who have no idea about these prophecies or don't think they're fulfilling these prophecies, but are out just to stop an enemy are by doing that very thing, fulfilling the prophecies about him. This is what Paul is saying. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down and laid him in the tomb. And so it's almost this like, again, we, we, we think we're just stopping an enemy, crushing a movement, uh, cutting the head off a snake, right? Um, with no regard for like, let's make sure we follow all these steps. And in just acting this way, they're playing right into the hand of our sovereign God who has said, here's all the steps that are going to happen. They're not, they don't know that they're running a playbook, right? They don't know that there's a script written. Um, and yet God, who is sovereign over all of this, is like, this is how it's going to go down. And then they're just cruelty and, and just, you know, again, carelessness and, and just hatred for Jesus. These things unfold, and it's exactly as God had promised that it would. And so Paul makes it clear. He's not like, after most of what was written happened, after everything that was written about Jesus happened, they took him down and put him in a tomb, fulfilling every prophecy. And remember this, this Jewish audience in the synagogue that Paul is talking to, 
who's quite familiar with the, the promises and, and, and the prophecies of this Messiah that would come. And Paul is pointing, right? And he's like, listen, in case you're wanting to say, oh, well, he got 80% of the promises, and so it's a good match, right? It's a most likely candidate for the Messiah. Paul said, after he crossed every T and dotted every I in the promises about him, then he was buried. It's a watertight, airtight case for Christ being the Messiah. And this is what Paul is painting this picture for them. And this, it's not just historical fact, but, but a spiritual and eternal victory. This is the, uh, the amazing thing, right, over, over power, the power of sin and death. Because we don't put our hopes just in this factual history of the person of Jesus. That's important. We should, we should believe that and claim that, that Jesus was an actual person. He actually died. He actually rose from the dead. But it's not just the fact that those are true that we put our hopes in. We put our hopes in the fact that spiritually, in Jesus living, he lived a sinless life, and he was God, not just man. Spiritually, when he died on the cross, he took the punishment for sinners like us. That he did actually die because he's receiving this punishment, but that he was raised to life, and it's true historically, but that's not what our hope is in. Our hope is in the fact that in him being raised to life, the power of sin and death is broken and by faith, we can have eternal life in him. And so, yes, the historical accuracy of these events is important to us as believers, but the spiritual reality of these events is the promise of God unfolding, the promise of salvation unfolding for us. History confirms the promised spiritual reality of the person and work of Jesus. So don't, we, we don't want to just get caught up and, and, and stand our ground and just, you know, we, it's just the, it, his, historically it actually happened. He was a real person. Yes, he was. But what is the spiritual reality that he lived and died and rose again for? That's what our trust is in. Verse 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, Right? Paul is tying the, the historical event to the spiritual reality. This Jesus, who physically died and was crucified and physically rose again, true, true, and true, and true, he offers forgiveness of sins. That's the message I'm proclaiming to you. By him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Remember his audience here, right? And so, who is Jesus? He is God. He did live a sinless life. He did die on a cross, taking the punishment. He did rise again, defeating sin and death. This gospel offer of salvation, again, it's not do you trust in the historical facts of Jesus' life. The gospel offer of salvation is do you trust in the perfect, sinless Messiah who offers forgiveness and who rose again from the dead, freeing you from the power of sin and death, defeating sin and death that we might have new life for all eternity. This Jesus, Paul is saying, he is the rescue plan. God has always rescued his people. God has promised a savior king. This Jesus is the rescue. He is the savior king. Do you believe in him? Do you trust in him? And the people will leave the meeting wanting more. Can we hear about this next Sabbath? And they're following Paul and Barnabas. And they encourage them, 
to continue in the grace of God, right? These people who are so concerned with law, 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 history, and law. And Paul and Barnabas are saying, let's continue in the grace of God. The law of God reveals the grace of God. It points us to the grace of God, the heart of God to rescue sinners. What an amazing, amazing point. This plan of rescue that God has given us through the person of Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for um, just your, your sovereignty. Thank you that you are God and, and we are not. Um, that your ways are higher, that we, we can't figure you out, that you are so other and transcendent. Um, you are above. And yet, you allow us to see in your word how before the foundation of the world, you had a plan to rescue sinners. And then in the actual physical, historical events of our world, you let this plan unfold and you give us promises and you give us promises and you give us prophecies and you point us to the rescuer who will come and, and then you send Jesus. And he fulfills the promises, he fulfills the prophecies and it's not just this amazing, wow, these promises have come true and so these writings are now special uh, in this way, but that this person is special, this rescuer is real, the Messiah is real. Your plan of rescue is real for sinners. So we thank you for this gospel plan to rescue sinners, to redeem us, to save us. God, I pray that you would help us to see, just as, as Paul was able to see in, in your word, how, uh, how, how the, the gospel unfolds for, for those who, who are entrenched in the law and enslaved to the law and, and, and how the gospel is real and unfolds for, for those who uh, are just worshiping unknown gods and, and have no concept of, of the law, but uh, all are still sinners separated from you. And so, God, this idea of, of, of context and, and gospel fluency, God, I pray that for us. I pray that for, for our church, that we would see the beauty in how Jesus really is the answer to all these different problems and areas of life, and how we can point people to true life and hope and, e and eternal life with him. Thank you, God, for, for acting first, for loving us for rescuing us, for sending Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.